Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and Chief Evangelist for Postman, Kim Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore the world of APIs through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Ryan Boder, the Dow core team lead from API3. Ryan took me through a journey of how APIs are beginning to power the Web 3.0 universe, helping me understand many of the basics, but then also exploring what is possible for this new space. I always like to start with the basics and just who's Ryan Boder and, and what do you do? Sure. So I'm Ryan Boder. I'm the head of marketing at API3. I'm working, I guess, cross-functionally on a lot of different things, but my main job is to figure out how to communicate the somewhat complex topic that we work on to everybody in the world. I'm happy to be here. And uh, I also, just, just so you know, I do have a software development and particularly like a networking and API type background. So I, I used to work on APIs professionally. So I'm really excited to be here on this show. This means a lot to me because I was using the original Chrome extension back, oh gosh, probably 10, 12 years ago. So you're a technical guy, but what brought you to marketing then and got you into selling all of this? I'd say it's a number of things. One was, you, you know, you, you kind of get bored doing the same thing for too long. And I'd been building things for so long that eventually it started to feel repetitive. But two is that I kind of realized, you know, I've, I've always been somebody who's been a hardcore techie for, for my entire adult life. And I kind of realized the, and maybe I, I didn't initially pay enough respect to the difficulty in dealing with people, you know, the difficulty in in communication, the difficulty in helping people understand what problems your product solves and everything. So uh, I think of, over time, as I got more experienced, I started to appreciate more how challenging that problem is. And uh, it, it seemed like something I wanted to go and give it a try. So I like to think of marketing and tech and, and really in sales and every other aspect of businesses very much the same thing. It's just a different side of the same problem, but you're, you're all working toward the same goal. You're all like, you shouldn't be building something if you don't have a way to market it to your customers. And you don't, you shouldn't be you know, selling something if you don't have a way to communicate it. And you shouldn't be marketing something if it doesn't solve a real problem. And if you don't have a way to deliver it. And I, I realized like, Hey, you know, here's a, here's a whole new world that I get to learn about. So it was probably six or seven years ago that I I made the switch into, I guess you'd call it the dark side. Well, I'm thankful for folks like you because I don't know how many times I've been along for a ride where we built the killer product that makes a lot of sense, but we didn't have anybody to market it, anybody to handle the business side. And now that product, nobody knows anything about it because it never went anywhere. And so I, as a, te as a techie myself and a developer, I, I recognize the value of this. But you've kind of picked a doozy of a space to be doing this in. So let's start with the basics of what API 3 does. And then I think there's a lot to unravel here as far as connecting the tech to business, to, to what's going on in the world right now. So give me the lowdown. What does API 3 do? In the simplest way I can say it, API 3 connects web APIs to smart contracts. That's really what we do. There is plenty of complexity in how we go about doing that and what it's used for and how it's used. But yeah, we connect web APIs to smart contracts that run on the blockchain. If you are familiar with blockchain, Web3, all the you know Ethereum and smart contract stuff out there, then we, we're an Oracle. 
So we're, we're what's known as a blockchain oracle, or a, a, we provide off-chain data into on-chain smart contracts. But really what it comes down to is, in practice, all of the data that ends up in smart contracts comes from web APIs. And so all we're really doing is connecting web APIs to the contracts. In blockchain applications, decentralized applications, the main way the data is consumed is through what's called a data feed. So rather than, and, and because blockchains are isolated from the rest of the internet, because they can't just reach out and interact with another computer, it's much easier if they can just read data that's already on chain rather than having to make a request and wait for a response. And so when you talk about like DeFi applications, decentralized finance and all the stuff that's happening that's been so big in blockchain over the past couple of years, it's data feeds that everyone's looking for. So as an Oracle provider, we can turn your API into a data feed and make that available to smart contracts, Web3 applications, DeFi applications, whatever you want to call them, and however they might be used in a particular situation, we can turn your API into a data feed, or we can make it available in a simple request response fashion, which is a little bit, you know, which is more like what a traditional API or how a traditional API works. And depending on the situation, one's better than the other. So you just have to pick the right one for your, for the problem you're working on. So let's stay, stick with the basics for a little bit. What's, what's the benefits of a, a smart contract to my business to be able to operate and, and provide these? I guess you could answer that a couple of different ways. One is it's a fast growing new market. If you have a business that's established on Web2, that's established in, in the API economy, then you have a whole new, very fast-growing market of potential customers that exist over on Web3. So from a business standpoint, that's why it's beneficial. From a tech standpoint, what it comes down to is by building things on in smart contracts, I guess if I, if I break it down to individuals, you're enabling two individuals to interact with each other in a way that is that normally would require some sort of level of trust, some sort of level of like central trusted authority to maybe arbitrate the transaction or the interaction. But in smart contracts on blockchain, you're able to do that without a middleman, with without a, a central, centrally controlled middleman. I, to make it a little bit more concrete, if I'm going to transfer money to you, I would send it to your bank account. I wouldn't send it directly to you. I would have to transfer it to your bank account. I could write you a check. You could deposit it into your bank account, but it needs to go through the bank or a trusted middleman in order for that transfer to happen. In smart contracts, that's not necessary. You can have a peer-to-peer -peer interaction between two people, two individuals, or two entities that don't necessarily trust each other, and you can do it safely. So it all comes down to, and, and the term that's used is trustless computing trustless computation, but smart contracts enable trustless computation. And this, folks tend to lean towards this being financial. It's a transaction, but you said it very well there. I think it's it's a transaction and or interaction because it could be, I could be insuring something. It could be an ongoing relation. It's not a single transaction. And this is where we start moving more towards applications, right? Is, is we're able to actually do some sort of sustained business logic or something, but still with that base underlying trust, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and like, it, it's always easier to explain things by breaking it down to the simplest form of say, in this case, two individuals interacting with each other. But in practice, it's more complicated because Usually it's 
it's like you might have a pool of people or, or a, a group of people that are interacting and a marketplace that's, you know, trades that are taking place and uh, some sort of like what we call staking or some sort of like people that are putting their assets on the line in order to hopefully ensure something or, or get some sort of a gain in the future. Uh, so it, it is more complicated in practice. And yes, it, it's definitely bigger than just financial. I, I think because of Bitcoin, the simplest application for blockchains was Bitcoin and or, or, or is currency is, you know, building a digital currency and Bitcoin was the first successful implementation of a digital currency. We're seeing things like logistics, we're seeing insurance, we're seeing art, you know, in, in, if you're familiar with NFTs, uh, art or creative work. I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's one of those things where I can't tell you what all is going to happen because the market's going to figure that out. But there's so much possibility. And what it, it, it's really just a new paradigm of computing. It kind of like the internet was a new paradigm of computing, you know, suddenly, or, or maybe another way to look at it is the cloud computing. So before cloud computing, you weren't able to, there were a lot of things that were maybe infeasible for small businesses or startups, or you know, there were a lot of things that if you weren't a large corporation, you just didn't, you couldn't play in that game. You didn't get to compete. Whereas with cloud computing, when that came along and everything became more elastic and everything became more on demand, then suddenly there was a, an entirely new wave of applications, uh, software as a service applications that ended up being built on top of that. And we have something similar here. It's like this whole new computing paradigm, this this trustless computing paradigm, where in the past you you had to have some sort of a like large corporation with a with a lot of money and a reputation and maybe or or maybe a government of some sort that could be a trusted sort of a, a trusted arbitrator between two people that are trying to do something that are trying to transfer value or do something that involves transferring value in smart contracts and on blockchain that becomes a peer to peer thing that becomes a much more or decentralized is the word that's used most often but makes it so that you can have these applications without needing the trusted middleman yeah that that makes a lot of sense and and so i think People get Web 1.0. You get you get that it was a you know the basic website static. There wasn't. It took a while before things were dynamic and things things were data driven and 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 grew. And then we're familiar with Web 2.0 now, mobile applications and and web and SaaS and and these things. Describe for me Web 3 applications. What are the limitations? What are the constraints? Kind of what do they? How do they work? Yeah, the, the limitations. So in order to, I, I guess you could define a Web3. It is difficult to define a Web3 application. I don't think any, I don't think there is a, a widely accepted definition of a Web3 application, but structurally, they usually consist of a smart contract or a set of smart contracts coupled with a front-end website that are interacting with each other. So people are interacting with the website and then the website's interacting with the blockchain. Well, the the website is facilitating the interaction between their wallet, their local wallet, and the blockchain, and you know making some valuable thing happen. That's really what a what a Web three application normally comes down to, technically. But then when you what you're getting out of it is like if I it allows me to you know, if we're going back to some of the decentralized finance examples. 
if I've got some money, say I've got some Bitcoin or I've got some Ethereum or Ether or I've got some other you know token, it allows me to do something like lend it to somebody in another country, you know, maybe some somebody in another country that I've never met before that we have no traditional way to interact. It allows me to safely lend them money and earn interest. And then, and, you know, it allows them to have access to a loan that they wouldn't have otherwise. So it creates kind of a, a much more equitable and global marketplace for transferring value. And so that's, that's really, I mean, it, yeah. it's hard to maybe comprehend how big a deal that is, but that's a really big deal. Uh, and really opens the door to a lot of new cool stuff and, and new valuable things to be built and, or to, to be executed because they couldn't happen otherwise, you know, cause I, if I'm in an area that's unbanked, for example, or if I'm in an area that doesn't have access to modern banking, modern finance, then I, I maybe can't get a loan to start a new business or I can't, you know, get a loan to start a new endeavor. And now I can. Yeah. It's very similar. You used the cloud analogy earlier, I would say. So, you know, I mean, when did the cloud start? I guess, you know, we, if I use the Amazon analogy, we're talking 2006, 2007, and you had compute DNS, you had the, all these new types of storage, these new types of resources that were elastic and new. And that was the, the seed of, of this next change. But really where I saw most people were looking at the applications and the end result of what was being delivered. But I noticed that Stripe, Twilio, these other types of resources, these raw resources, tel SMS, messaging, telephone, payments, voice command, things like that were emerging. And these were being remixed to enable what I considered the Web 2.0 economy, which is they created Ubers, they created DoorDashes, they created the gig economy, these types of things. So these raw resources went into that. But describing telling normals and the normal people about this, you know, I started in 2010, everyone just kind of was like, this guy's crazy. Like I was talking about this API economy and this new thing. And like, I could see it, I see it, but no one else, you know, or very few other people saw it. And so that's really what this feels like. So if, if I have raw resources available via APIs, is this a new place for me to, to be peddling those resources? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's that that's, and that's what API three does. That That's really our whole, because uh, you, you mentioned a few examples there, like Twilio, you know, which is an API infrastructure play. They ended up enabling numerous new applications that, that we all probably used and knew. And the, the average person probably didn't know who Twilio was or that had no idea that they were even a part of what they were doing. And that's kind of how API 3 is. We're infrastructure like that. We create this connection. We, we allow web API companies, web 2 API companies to offer their services on Web3. And for the most part, even the users in DeFi, the users in Web3, they don't know about us. You know, they, they don't have to interact with us. They don't see API3 when they're looking at the website, when they're doing their, you know, when they're doing their insurance or getting their insurance or offering their insurance or doing their loan or getting, you know, doing what we call yield farming is sort of a, a similar way that people end up making a return on their cryptocurrency. You, you don't have to know everything about the API companies, but it's the developers, it's the builders on Web3 who know about us. And likewise, it's the builders on Web2 who knew about Twilio and used Twilio. So so you, you talked about the data feeds into this. Like I can see there being, having price, price feeds, conversions, um, those types of data, 
But you mentioned like art and other things. Like what are other types of data feeds that I could bring to Web3 via API3 that would benefit the community? Or is that uncharted territory? It's a little of both. The So there's established data feeds that are you know, price feeds, like you said, which are already very widely used. And then there's additional types of data feeds. Another one that is talked about a lot now is weather. So like a, a weather data feed, uh, you want to know what the average weather is in a certain area, or you want to know whether a, a storm or like a, a catastrophic event occurred or something like that for an insurance product. So weather data is big, but logistics data is another one. So a lot of a lot of people are looking to build logistics solutions. Like take the automotive industry for example. There's a huge logistical problem because the because of all the parts that are required in the supply chain that goes into building a vehicle. It comes from all over the world and is very hard to track, very hard to to manage. And there's a lot of room for people to cheat. There's a lot of room for things to be to, for mistakes to be made, for people to falsify where something was produced, when something was produced and everything. So in the automotive industry, they're looking at building supply chain tracking on blockchain and making it so that being that, that gives you a, a reliable or immutable is the, is the term that we like to use for the blockchain, meaning like once it's on there, you can't, it will never change. It's permanent. Uh, and so that gives like an immutable record of traceability back to where things were put together, how things were put together when they were put together. So, so you might have API data that's that's like that. You you might be a logistics company that has AP, that has an API that allows you to track a package. You, you and you could potentially, with this new wave of applications that are starting to be built on Web three, you could offer your services a, as an API or as a data feed, depending on like it, it, maybe track a package isn't the best example because it's hard to offer a data feed that tracks a package <laughs> that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Data feeds are normally more global global information like. The price of silver to the U.S. dollar—that's mm-hmm. mostly a global price. That's something where you can you can estimate it globally, but the location of a package depends on the specific package, and so it's harder to build a data feed around that. Rather, you have to do it as a request. You know, here's the ID of the package I want tracked. Give me back the location. So that needs to be done as a request response. Um, but yeah, it's it's really insurance products, and then like. The the big thing about insurance or the, the, the hot topic in insurance on blockchain is called parametric insurance. And what that means is another way to think of that is like programmatic insurance. So that traditionally with insurance, you you buy a policy and then if you if something happens and you want to make a claim, you call your insurance agent, they write it down, you have an adjuster take a look at it, and they make a, a subjective decision about whether you're going to be covered or not, and then they send you money. Parametric insurance is more is a smart contract that you say like if this certain input or this if this certain event occurs, trigger a claim, trigger a payout, and so it's like a, mm-hmm. an automated a, a software version of insurance, uh, and you can do that with certain types of insurance like weather related insurance, so agricultural insurance. You, you can have APIs, and, and there are APIs that will tell you whether there was a drought in an area in a particular area. And then you can have that trigger an insurance payout if you have farmers that had purchased insurance through this parametric insurance product, rather than having to go through the process of making filing a report, waiting for an individual to take a look at it, make a claim, you can have an automatic and immediate payout. Interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, I see the I have a data source I want to make. That's one layer of this. 
but then I could be offering this application, say the insurance part. And then, but it seems like knowing financial products and understanding insurance, there could be other layers there too. So say like, like my MacBook's getting old, I ordered a new one and I got the supply chain issue response. I can't get it right away because of supply chain issues. Now I could, in theory, there could be insurance like home-based business, remote work insurance, like covering my small business or my, my business that, that keeps me producing, keeps me productive or whatever. And if I'm unable because of supply chain shortages, I'm insured against that. So that's the insurance. But then it seems like you could also be betting. There could be a pool of people who are betting or shorting the, the good or the bad of that supply chain. And, and so they got the supply chain data feed. You've got the insurance product that's covering remote work, but then once you're doing at that scale, you've got a, a pool of people that you can basically bet upon, but it's in the blockchain and you could create some sort of market around that, it seems like. So is that kind of the, because that seems like that's like creating Uber for the next, you know, the next is like you're creating financial products based upon everyday life in that sense. Yeah, that that's a actually great example. And, uh, and betting is, is definitely one of the more popular use cases in Web3 currently where you have people that want to bet in sports betting or something like that, or betting on gaming. Uh, mm-hmm. You have people that want to bet on an event. And, and these are all things like with sports betting, there, there are APIs that are able to deliver that data into the smart contract and enable the, the bet to be enforced or, you know, the outcome of the bet to be enforced, the money to be distributed as it's supposed to be. Uh, so yeah, like anything that people might bet on, I, I think you, the big theme is it's easier to do this stuff when the inputs and outputs are easily mapped to data or easily mapped to a digital form. So mm-hmm. anything in, in it's, it's probably you have a much wider variety of inputs, like the results of a sports, you know, the outcome of a sports game would be an input to a betting contract. It's easier mm-hmm. to map those into a digital form it's a little bit harder to map the outputs into a digital form. So usually what we're seeing now is the output is somebody gets paid. That, that's the easiest digital output that we can produce is money or tokens or cryptocurrency or whatever you're trading happens to be transferred from this account into this account. But I also think that like anything, you know, this is so early or in such, such an early place for Web3 that we're going to start seeing more physical real world outputs as well, or having, you know, blockchain contracts that end up triggering something to happen in the real world. There's no reason to think that that won't happen. It just hasn't happened as much thus far. So internet of things. So that could be tied to this whole web three reality. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, I'm not just making this up. Like people are, people are doing this now. People are talking about this and, and, building things like this, but it's not widely adopted. I mean, if I guess if you think of Web3 as a pretty early in the adoption curve right now, then there are even within Web3, there are more established use cases and then like newer cutting edge use cases. And so the more established use cases in Web3 are financial products, uh, banking. Well, I know banking is even a rather or newer one, but decentralized finance, loans, yield farming, staking the ability to put money like take take an asset that you have put it at risk and then get a return on it or the ability to borrow an asset and then pay a premium 
in order to get access to it. That's what's currently widely done in Web3. But then like I think the the new with all these new high performance and lower cost blockchains that, that are being built, these new platforms or, or smart contract platforms that are being built, those are going to enable more a, a much broader class of applications. Social media, for example, or, or like interacting with people and communicating, uh, you, you don't see a whole lot of that on Ethereum because Ethereum is has very high gas costs. It's it's not super high performance. It's got it's currently suffering from a scalability problem. There's not a big motivation for me to for to do my communication or my social networking on Ethereum. But when the cost goes down to near zero, or or you know when it, when the cost gets negligible uh, and the speed gets user friendly, then why not? You know, then maybe maybe I will be using a social networking platform that exists on the blockchain and and rather than having to store all my data with a Facebook or trust a Facebook or, you know, whatever Twitter platform, you know, whatever social platform you happen to use, maybe that's done in a more trustless form on Web3. It, it's just a matter of, you know, getting over the obstacles to be able to kick it off. For normals, explain the gas costs, the gas fees. What's How does that work? The blockchain or a blockchain is is a network of computers, a distributed system, uh, a decentralized system. It's basically a bunch of computers. So imagine five hundred computers that are all running the same software. They're they're all they're nodes in the network. And in order for a smart contract to do some computation to execute, all five hundred of those computers have to start with the same inputs, do the same computation and then agree that the output is the same. And so that, that's that's called consensus or coming to achieving consensus on the network. And once they reach consensus, then they, they will etch that result into the immutable permanent blockchain. But it costs money to run 500 computers. You know, so that, like somebody's got to pay for the computation to do that. And not just the computation to do the calculation in your program, like not, not, the, not just the application, but there's also a lot of computing that has to be done in order to cryptographically secure the network, or in other words, like prove with a super high level of confidence that all the nodes did come did reach consensus, or that the, the network did reach consensus. Yeah, the the computing that's necessary, I guess, to implement this big distributed computer costs money, as well as the computation that you're trying to to build for your application. And gas is the built-in like native currency in the blockchain that allows you to pay for that computation. Kind of my next generation Amazon bill, but it's distributed and it's, and like you said, it it's going to fluctuate and the lower we can get it, the better off I am as someone operating in this environment because I'm going to be able to keep costs low. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And it does, it certainly does fluctuate like extreme in some cases. Sometimes you, you try to get an Uber and you get like, what do they call it when, when there's, a lot of demand, the surge, surge, surge pricing, pricing. Yeah, surge so pricing. you might end up paying a little bit yeah. more. Well, I've seen gas prices on Ethereum range from, you know, a few bucks up to well over a hundred dollars just to do one transaction. It, it's, it hasn't been the greatest user experience. Let me put it that way, but yeah. it has it, that, that same surge pricing or, you know, that, that same like fluctuating gas pricing, that's what enables the network to be so secure. That you, when you when you have a lot of competition for the computing resources, 
it's the one who's willing to pay the most that gets to use them. Yeah, you have something worth doing, something valuable. You can you can take that lead. You can pay pay the premium, and you and you get to do what you want. You have that. You're the top dog in that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's how markets work, and it's how you know financial products work. It's just digitally applying that across the board to an unlimited number of re- digital resources and capabilities. So, who are you trying to reach when you're marketing API three products? So, who do you try to target? Is it more technical? Is it more business or mix? We're a connector. So we're, we're basically, we're connecting two sides. One would be API providers or API businesses. And then the other would be smart contract developers. And so I think of both of them as our customers. In reality, I guess if your definition of a customer is who you've served, then, then it's both of them. If your definition of a customer is where money comes from, the money comes from the Web3 side and then flows up to the API provider side. So if you, I, I actually use the Amazon marketplace as a analogy sometimes. If you think of API3 and the, the whole like ecosystem around API3 as the Amazon marketplace, you have buyers and sellers and the API companies are the sellers. You have the, the, the people running APIs who might wanna offer data or offer a service via their APIs or the sellers. And then the smart contracts are the buyers. And so, of course, it takes a developer to build a smart contract. So the smart smart contract developers are really our customers. Yeah, but I can see that's a that's a really interesting analogy because as soon as those those contracts and those applications are established in Web three for whatever the purpose is and environment, weather, currency, all these different things, you have people who are plugged into those buy and sell and are part of those marketplaces kind of like Amazon. And like, as soon as I make, this is the sell to Web 2.0 APIs in the Amazon marketplaces, you put your API in there. Now you, any company who has Amazon push through their procurement, meaning that company has a relationship with Amazon, can pay an Amazon bill, and, and that's been approved. Now they can buy your API, where if maybe they have to go to your API and find it directly, they would have to push it through a procurement process. You're a small startup. You probably don't have the resources to go through procurement like that. So just being in the Amazon marketplace opens up all of these new business opportunities. And that feels like what's what's going on here with that analogy and, and Web3 is now I'm able to just plug my – I may not be wanting to be the the – smart contractor, the app master in the Web3 world. But I have some valuable resources that could be there, and that's all I could be, just plug it in. But now there's this whole new world of, of developers who are going to be able to build with that. Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. And now the, the Amazon marketplace analogy is not a perfect analogy because yeah. you know, another analogy that I like to use is because we're building infrastructure. Uh, so another analogy that I like to use is we're kind of like your web server, so like, you know, you have people, you have browsers that are consumers of websites, and then you have companies that build websites. And one way that you could go about building a website is you could implement the HTTP protocol. You, you could have your development team sit down and implement the HTTP protocol and build your website like that. Of course, nobody does that. Maybe people did something like that back in the day, but, you know, now everybody, I mean, I mean, like, for as long as I was in development, everybody just uses Apache or Nginx or some, you know, whatever web server you might be using 
API 3 and has a software called AirNode. It's really the, the thing that we build is AirNode. The, the, the actual software that we build is called AirNode is like a web server. And it takes the complexity out of you connecting your APIs to the blockchain because it's actually a pretty difficult thing to do. And so in that sense, uh, API 3 is more like a web server and it enables you to just build your website the way you want it. Or you've got, if your APIs are the are akin to a website, then AirNode is what allows you to just connect those and host those or serve those on two blockchain applications, two Web3 applications. I think that's a good analogy. I'm always looking for the analogies to try to to bridge the world and get people understanding because I think web servers have kind of been commoditized and, and are out of sight now. But, you know, circa 2000, it's like Apache, Nginx now, you know, they're, I mean, these are still valuable resources. So helping people see how you do that, I think, is is pretty critical for this new space. AirNode is, is intended to be commoditized. That's that's it's not a product that we sell. It's an open source software that we want to just become the standard way that API companies connect mm. to. So we, we want it to be the Apache or the Nginx for Web3. We're not trying to build like an IIS. It's it, we're trying to become the standard open source way that you just download and set and forget. And suddenly you're connected to Web3. Yeah, I remember IIS. Well, I'm not even going to go there. That's like the the trauma and PTSD from IIS days. And once I discovered Apache, I was like, I've been lied to all these years. I mean, like the Microsoft world was such a, back then it just kind of was a scam, I felt like. And and once you developed open source in Apache and realized you could go so much further and do so much more. Anyways, I won't go down that road. What's in it for you then? Why, what's, why is it worth investing in, in the open source like this? What's the benefit to API 3? API 3, our, our whole strategy is we're building value-added services on top of this. We, we need this infrastructure to exist first, and then we're building value-added services on top of it. One of the things that we're doing is building a product called DAPIs. And so that's a, well, you know what? Let me back up because there's an even, there's an even more immediate example I can give. Uh, we're We're launching a product in just a few weeks here. We've already announced it, but we're launching it at the East Denver conference in in Denver, Colorado in uh, early February called Beacons. And Beacons are just a very standardized way and, and very efficient and scalable way that you can take your API, turn it into a data feed and put it on chain or, you know, put it, make it available to smart contracts. And we provide an insurance product for those data feeds. If you're building a mission critical smart contract, and that's the thing about smart contracts is they usually are mission critical. They're not like there's usually something at stake. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't be worrying so much about this whole trustless computing aspect. There's something to be lost. Uh, and so API three offers an insurance on like, say, if that data feed were to go down or if that data feed were to provide incorrect data that causes you to that causes your application to malfunction and then the wrong person gets paid. And so that the insurance product is a big part of our business model. So that's that's one example. Another example is when you have many different API companies that are providing their data feeds to smart contracts, what you can do is you can mix and you can kind of mix them together and or, or aggregate them into like a super data feed and API 3 and this is not actually done yet. This is something that's still being built, but API 3 builds these 
decentralized APIs by composing multiple or, or, or adding together multiple single data feeds from API providers and then sells those at a premium. Those are really the two best examples, I think, of the value-add products. And that's why the the core tech, the infrastructure, we don't really make any money on because we just need that to exist in order to implement our own business model. Uh, so we try to we yeah. try to be like this. We try to be as out of the picture as possible when it comes to just connecting an API provider to a smart contract, which is why API providers love us because that hasn't been the case thus far. You know, that like there, there are these middlemen who have a lot of power who buy data from API providers and then resell it on blockchain for a lot more. And so what's what API providers or API companies are loving about API 3 and Airnode is that it allows them to just go direct. It allows them to directly offer their services to the customer and cut out that middleman. So back to the, the web server model is your guys' incentives different than Microsoft's was. Microsoft had a walled garden approach. They wanted to be the middleman, control it. But then Apache just wanted everybody, the, the whole thing to grow. So API 3 benefits if the more people that are operating in Web3 and doing successful things and, and, and markets are created, you guys, your incentive is for that to be large rather than to be a gatekeeper on that, that new growth. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And, and maybe another, since you like analogies, uh, if you think of like Red Hat, Red Hat invested a lot of money into building an easy to use Linux distribution so that they could build a business on top of it. And they, you know, they had all these value added service, like implementation services, hosting services, all these things that they did on top of Red Hat Linux, the, but they, they never were a gatekeeper of their Linux distribution. They always gave that away free. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's definitely, I think how the next, I, I'm hoping the next generation of the, the API economy is built with that model that things are, are that open and democratic because I feel like in the early days of the web in APIs, like the first APIs, I was like, oh, everything's open. You can build whatever you want. I've got new access to mapping resources like I could never imagined before. I could never build a mapping service. And then you build your whole thing. And then in like four years, it's like, wait, now I've got to pay all this money for the mapping resources. So I felt like it was a real bait and switch when, with, with the API economy early on that the power structure saw what was happening and then started locking things down and centralizing it. And so it feels like, I mean, that's supposedly the promise here of Web3 is that it's going to keep that from, from happening again. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and that is, I think that's, that's natural. The first one to dominate a market it's it's maybe impossible or you don't see it happen very often where a monopoly decides to just play nice forever. You know, and eventually a monopoly ends up kind of, <laughs> they, they're like, oh, okay, well, I can do less and get more if I want to. And so then, you know, eventually uh, they, they get a little bit too greedy and then some an yeah. innovative new option comes along and offers something different and people are thrilled to have that. And that's, that's kind of what we're looking to do is there's, there's certainly a monopoly in our space and we don't, you know, we're not going to unseat the monopoly, but at the same thing, like Microsoft still exists, right? But Linux has been able to help grow the pie. And there, there are all these new things that are available because of Linux that you probably wouldn't have ever seen if Microsoft just got to be king forever. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do is, is grow the pie. And, and we, think there's room for several different ways of doing business in this space. What's your take on all the whole pro and anti-Web3 kerfuffle right now on social media? 
what's it all about? Why is why is Web3 get folks so worked up for or against? Well, for one thing, as we said before, it's hard to really define what it is. So if you're arguing about something that is undefined, that argument's <laughs> not going to have a whole lot of that there's not going to be a whole lot of rational thought or you know rational rationality in that argument. If I'm arguing about one thing and you're arguing against me about something entirely different, then what are we even talking about? And I think that's the case with Web3. So what you're I'm assuming you're talking about some of the like Jack and Elon making comments about. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, yeah, exactly. That kind of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's true that Web3 is very early. Uh, it, it's true that it's not it's true that it's not mainstream. Uh, it's it's. You know, you could the the argument that it's more of a marketing gimmick. I don't think that's fair. I, I don't think that's really true. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's marketing involved with it, but it's a trillion dollar industry, right? Like, it's, there's a lot that's already happening, a lot of usage that's already taking place, a lot of adoption that's already there, and it's growing rapidly. So, you know, give it five, ten years, maybe, maybe less. I don't know, but it, it's a game changing technology. There are a lot of people who are used to doing things a certain way and they're going to have to learn to adapt. And so maybe it's hard to do that. I know it's hard for me to do that. It's also not like, it's not a panacea. Right now, Web3, I would say it's, it performs horribly. In, in, you know, when you're used to like, when you're used to a high performance computing center, Web3 offers a really bad user experience. It's got a long way to go when it comes to efficiency, user experience, ease of use, uh, and, and it kind of makes sense because I guess like if you're, if you're only talking about performance, you know, so you might build like a distributed computing system in order to increase performance. And if you do that, you're doing a lot of parallel processing, you know, so you, you've got like 500 computers and each one's doing different work. And then at the end, they're collecting that work back together and they've done 500 times the work that one computer would have done. In blockchain, you've got 500 computers that are all doing the same computation. There's no way they can do that faster than an individual computer. You know, they, there's no way that they can do that and then all coordinate with each other and reach consensus faster than you can do it on a centralized computer. So the performance is slow. The user experience isn't great. The, the user experience in dealing with wallets needs improved. One of the things that you're used to in Web 2 is your identity is owned by a big tech company. You know, your identity is owned by Google or Facebook or whoever, whoever you log in as. Uh, owns your identity and your data is stored there. And, and then they're, because of that, they're able to provide certain user experience benefits that make things really smooth and frictionless. On Web3, you own your identity. So like, I've got a wallet, it has my private keys on it. And that those private keys are how I prove that I am who I am. So those private keys represent my identity. If I lose those, then my identity is gone. And that's that's very similar to like, if your Google account were to just get deleted, you know, you've got like your email, you've got your, you've got like a bunch of stuff or, or maybe even make it more extreme. Your, if your bank account just got deleted and you've got all your money in your bank account. Well, that's the case with, with Web3 and crypto and having been being responsible for your own private keys. There's more responsibility on the user currently. And a lot of people are working on finding ways to make that, to make that easier, to make that uh, less error prone. But we're early enough in it that you kind of have to, you, you have to use at your own risk. You know, you have to like, you have to know what you're doing. There are some terms that are used a lot, like do your own research, 
or like DYOR or um, another one is Cole's law or Cole's codes law, they say, which, which basically it just means like, if you're not supposed to trust anybody in web three, you're supposed to go and verify everything yourself. And while that's great, theoretically, it's not really practical that I'm going to go and verify every smart contract that I ever interact with on web three. Some of those challenges have to be overcome before we can offer a great experience on web three. But that being said, it's still a lot better than it was three years ago. It's, it's improving rapidly. Yeah. Is it just for techie folks or are there opportunities for, for business folks who really may not get all the technical details to, to jump in? Oh, no, there, there are definitely opportunity for business folks. I, I actually write articles on entrepreneur.com about you know, why founders of startups ought to be looking, and cons- looking at blockchain, considering Web3 as a place to deploy their products. Again, it's not something that's right for every new company, but it's something that I think is being overlooked a lot of times for newer companies is like, hey, maybe we should build this with Web3 in mind, or maybe we should build this on Web3. I, I would say it might be more fun for entrepreneurs than for techies, in my opinion. It's a an uncharted territory where you can go out and do things that are, you know, in in the traditional internet, it's it can be challenging to find something that you can build that Google hasn't already built. You know, it, it, it's challenging to find something that hasn't already been done. Whereas in this space, it's just like the wild west and there's so much opportunity. Well, and the big problem is find not just the ideas of what to be done, that once you come up with one, if you do it on Amazon, you're never going to get investment because the, the investors know that that's the kill zone. Like Amazon's just going to steal your idea and do it. So why even bother starting it? And so it's kind of so many levels. Web 2 is depleted in that way from being a place to see interesting things. So. Yeah, that, that's a great point, actually. And the the other aspect of that is, so you t- you hear about like ICOs, uh, initial point offerings, or, or and then now there are DAOs. And like one of the things that happens on Web3 or that, it, that is enabled by Web3 for entrepreneurs is the ability to, the ability to at a very granular, in a very granular way, offer stake to or, you know, get stakeholders, people who want to be a part of your project, uh, and then manage that stake rather than having to go through like a traditional stock approach. The API three DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization, I think it's over four thousand different people who are holding API three tokens and are essentially stakeholders in API three and can participate in governance of API three it's really an exciting way to start a company. It's like the next way to do a VC or, you know, to do like a, a Silicon Valley startup. It's more equitable in the sense that like anyone in the world can do it. You don't have to move to Silicon Valley anymore. You can just access that. Yeah. You can tap into like investment money resources. You can reward employees more efficiently. You know, like you, you can, you can make your, all of your contributors stakeholders by, offering them tokens in the project. Uh, it's just much more powerful and efficient than I think it's been for startups previously. Very interesting. Definitely. There's there's some areas I want to have you back. So I want to do some conversations in the future around around that your business structure. I thought you mentioned beef to me before the the Ethereum RPC and how, how your 
I want to explore how your business is structured. I want to explore the API part and then get into some of the blockchain, the smart contracts and, and blockchain stuff. So, so I'll definitely be reaching out, but I appreciate your time today and joining me. This was fun. I, I had a good time. Yeah, definitely. I, I enjoy talking to you. And there's a, uh, if, if you do want to have a conversation about the way the organization is structured, our lawyer, he's, he's on the project. His name's Eric. He's one of the best minds in Web3 or decentralized governance in the world. Uh, so he's, he's a leader. In that. So he, uh, he's the one who set up our DAO. He's the one who structured all the like organizational paperwork and structure and He's somebody who could talk your ear off on why we've done the things we've done and, and like other new DAOs, they, they end up modeling their organizational structure after API three because of the work that he's done. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to have, I'm going to tap into you for that one. Cause sure. there's a lot of policy regulatory thing, API related things we've been exploring on this show. And I think that that's in that, in that area as far as very interesting. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks Ryan. Yeah. Thanks again to Ryan for stopping by. For more on Ryan, you can find him on LinkedIn, but you can also visit api3.org to learn more about what he's up to. You can subscribe to the Breaking Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Kim Lane, and until next time, cheers. <laughs>